How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Dr. Philip Carey is professor of philosophy at Eastern University in beautiful St. David's, Pennsylvania, where he's also the scholar in residence of the Templeton Honors College. He received his BA in English Lit and Philosophy from Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Carey earned an MA in philosophy and a PhD in philosophy and religious studies from Yale. He is the recent winner of the Lindback Award for Excellence in Undergrad Teaching at Eastern. He's also taught at Yale, at the University of Connecticut, and at the University of Hartford. As the Arthur J. Ennis Postdoctoral Fellow at Villanova University, he taught the nationally recognized undergrad core humanities seminars. On and on, his CV is over seven pages. I won't take our time to read all that. I stumbled across Phil Carey because I listened to courses via The Great Courses, which used to be called The Teaching Company. And I think the first course I got of yours, Phil, was on Luther. And I just, I mean, I went to seminary. I did a doctoral program. You know, I, I tell people I've read Augustine's Confessions. I couldn't prove it. And so this, in my 60s, I went and decided to go back and relearn things. So I've read Heiko Overman's text, a number of texts on Luther. And you put Luther together in such an extraordinary way. Then I found out you had this course called The History of Christian Theology, and I consumed that. Then I got Augustine, Philosopher, and Saint, consumed that. And then I went through philosophy and religions. And I have to tell you, I struggled with that one, Prof. <laughs> well, yeah, that's philosophy more than theology. And, and I've, you know, theology is more beautiful than philosophy because theology <laughs> is about Christ. So. Well, it's not you. It's my ineptness in philosophy. And, uh, you know, my training's all been on the other side of the bench. But I learned a lot. But that said, I had to listen to several lectures scratching my head going, okay, I wish I was in his class right now instead of listening on tape. But anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you. For jumping on our podcast. We are so grateful to have you. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for welcoming me. Let's talk about what I would consider an easy, popular read called Good News for Anxious Christians, 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. And I remember listening to the great courses and you making an allusion. Every quote religion has anxieties. You talked about Catholics have anxieties when it comes to merit-based salvation. Protestants have anxieties that they believe the right thing and so on. And I thought, what a wonderful way to address a subject that we talk about assurance of salvation or eternal security or, you know, how do you know that you know that you know that you're saved, we might hear in, in evangelical terms. And I love this because, as I told our church last Sunday, it's a book I wish I'd have written before you, but you did a marvelous job. And I want to start at the end of the book and then come back and have you talk about some of your favorite ones. But the one that was encouraging and convicting at the same time was chapter 10, why basing faith on experience leads to a post-Christian future. And in my sphere of influence in Middle Tennessee, I've noticed the experiential theology is winning the day. Uh-huh. How I feel, my passions, what I think the Lord's telling me, I want to do what my heart says, and I glump it into this experiential thing. Explain to our folks who haven't yet got your book and got into it, 
you base this on dealing with students. How do we talk about experience leading to a post-Christian future? Right. Well, this is, this is interesting. Right. So it really comes down to what you think experience is. I think of experience as aimed at something. Our experience is about something. So suppose you think of your experience of love. It's about the person you love, right? So your experience is not about your experience. It's about this person. My experience of love for my wife is about my wife. It's not about my experience. So someone who's talking about how wonderful they feel because they're in love and gushing about their feelings of love and how wonderful it feels to be in love is not really paying attention to what the experience of love wants them to pay attention to, which is the beloved, the person that you love. So talking about experience, I think, is contrary to Christian experience. Christian experience wants to be about the beloved, about Christ. So if you're talking all the time about how it makes you feel, then you're not really engaging in Christian experience. You're turning inward to yourself and missing the whole point. So it's like the picture of Christ in your heart gets smaller and smaller because you're looking at your heart instead of at Christ. I have a, a little picture in the book. If you can imagine it, someone looking at the cross and they're looking at their beloved on the cross. But suppose they're really just interested in how they feel. Well, then the man on the cross ends up shrinking and shrinking and your feelings end up taking up the whole frame of the picture and it becomes all about you which is really sad because mm -hmm. you want it to be about someone other than you, but the experiential theology turns theology inward on itself and you lose the whole point of the experience. Now you and I would come, I hope, I believe from the same grid that it's the word of God. I say God's word, God's spirit, God's people, that you have to be grounded in God's word. You need God's spirit to help you read, understand, apply, and integrate this into your life. So it's not just an appendage, but you also need God's people around you to, Absolutely. on the one hand, I say, give you a spiritual dope slap when you need it and also <laughs> encourage you when you need it. Yeah. But what's happened is, and you deal with the college students, is how I feel and my experience has no foundation in Scripture, or that's maybe an overstatement, not much foundation in Scripture. Well, part of the problem, in fact, is lots of college students, Christian college students, will come to my classes and they haven't really been taught the Bible. They haven't been taught the Word of God. And they're taught that they're supposed to be listening for God's voice in their heart. But that becomes kind of empty when you don't know the scriptures, when you don't know the story of Christ, when you don't know the story of the Bible and of Israel and of God's people. And so you end up just you know, listening to your feelings. And that's not a good thing to recommend for adolescents <laughs> at, at the basis for spirituality. Mm -hmm. We do need to listen to our feelings because we need to understand how we feel. But that's not God. That's just how we feel. It's important to know how you feel, but don't confuse it with the voice of God, right? Another thing you mentioned, this God's word and God's people, right? They go together because God's word is addressed to God's people. Correct. Right? To hear God's word is to hear God's word addressed to me among my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And there's a wonderful parallel that I love to mention about this. When Paul, the apostle, talks about being filled with the spirit, it's a passage in Colossians and a passage in Ephesians. And they're both about uh, with psalms and hymns and, and spir spiritual things, which no one knows actually what those mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, good. 
So Ephesians uh, five nineteen and Colossians three sixteen. Right. It starts in five eighteen. It goes to five nineteen. So it's both. Good enough. Here you go. There's this wonderful parallel in the writings of the apostle. There's a passage in the letter to the Ephesians where he says, "Be ye filled with the Spirit." speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then there's a parallel passage, very similar in the letter to the Colossians, where he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's talking about the same experience in both cases. In the one case, it means be filled with the spirit. In the other case, it means let the word of Christ dwell in you, you plural, you all, you guys, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you people richly. What is it to be filled with the spirit? It's to be part of God's people with the word of Christ dwelling in you all and singing and praising and giving thanks to God and learning the word of God together. That's what it is to be filled with the spirit. And that's, that gives content to Christian experience. And the content it gives to Christian experience, above all, is Jesus Christ. Now, you made the comment in the book in just a moment ago about the failure of, maybe that's a hard word, but the failure of churches that are no longer teaching Scripture, the move away in a broader context of evangelicalism, which, if I understand your lectures, that's not a word you're very fond of because of where it's ended up, so to speak. But, you know, when you look at the landscape, churches that grow and have vital youth groups, they're not teaching scripture. They're teaching how-tos, they're teaching experiential. The music is a huge draw and a very emotionally driven part of their, I would say, philosophy more than theology. In some respects, you're trying to get a kid through the program so that he or she goes off to college with some faith. But the loss is pretty tectonic. I mean, we are not seeing these young men and women grounded in the word. And we're old stodgy guys because we think they ought to be in a church that teaches the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it's the difference between focusing on emotion and focusing on what emotion is about. We've all had some emotional experiences with the Word of God when it has comforted our hearts and given us joy. But that's because it directs us away from our hearts and our emotions and toward the beloved, toward the one that God gives us as our Redeemer. And that means we need to know his story. We need to learn who he is. We need to learn the gospel. We need to hear good preaching. Because if you care about someone and love them, don't you want to know who they are? And you're not going to know who Jesus is if you don't learn the scriptures. Do you see young men and women who are more interested in the dialogue seems to have taken the place of personal study, discipline, mm-hmm. reflection? Well. Depends on what kind of dialogue you mean. So we have a small group, and we read a verse, and that person says, what does this mean to you? Uh, To which I want to cough up a hairball and go, I don't care what it means to you. What does it mean? And then how do we respond, react, you know, to the passage, to the truth? But this, I call it horizontal Christianity. It's I, me, my consumption, as opposed to vertical, he, how, thou, him. And it's just, it's striking to me that it's been such a, sweeping transition. Again, even in Middle Tennessee where we are, most churches, and I don't mean to sound arrogant, but most churches are going to spend more time on experience, how-to messages, the Enneagram, all kinds of things that are fine, but there's not a biblical theological grounding to be found. 
Yeah, the key notion here really is the notion of reality. <laughs> the notion that Jesus Christ is a real person. He is other than me and my feelings. You know, it is a bit like my wife. She's real, right? She's not just who I feel her to be. She has her own life. And if I want to know who she is, I need to listen to her and what she has to say for herself. Likewise, if I want to know who Jesus Christ is, I need to listen to his word and learn from his word who he really is and not just live, you know, in fantasies about this. Mm-hmm. And what the word of God does is it gives us this real person who's other than my own thoughts. And what love wants is to learn who this other is, which means love wants to obey this word of the other who knows who he is and wants to tell me who he is. But I'd better be listening if I want to know who he really is. I want to go back to this last chapter of your book and read a a short section. The New Evangelical Theology is dealing with problems of marketing. Quote, Uh experience, close quote, is the crucial sort of merchandise offered by consumerist spirituality. So getting churchgoers to talk about their experience is an important selling point. As a way of expanding market share, I'm sure it works, at least for a while, but as a way of forming hearts in the faith of Christ, it is likely to fail in the same way that liberal Protestantism, I mean, left alone for a month, Phil, I couldn't have written that as well. And I love what you're getting at there because, again, this is that horizontal experiential thinking as opposed to, and this is why you come to church. Let me give you six ways to have a better marriage, or if you understand your Enneagram more deeply, then you'll be a better person. Well, wait, where's Christ in this equation? Where is my serving him and worshiping him and putting him, I tell our people, if Jesus is 10% a little more in your day, that's growth. (laughs) If you're thinking about him a little more than normally, that's improvement because we're so horizontally fixated on how Christianity works in my life how Christ helps me in my cancer, in my marriage, in my longing to be married, in my sexual identity struggles. We're fixated on that rather than saying, as you've articulated, this is a real person. It's the God-man. He loves you completely. He's not mad at you. He offers you not only a free gift and forgiveness of sins, but a relationship to grow to be like him. He offers you himself. Yeah. And that's, it's meant to pull us out of ourselves and care about things other than ourselves. I think part of the mistake that I was trying to diagnose there in that last chapter is, as you put it, right, a kind of marketing mistake, right? Churches are trying to market themselves in a marketplace of spirituality. And what the marketplace of spirituality is selling is spiritual experiences, And it's a losing game because if what you want is high-powered experiences, you might as well take drugs. What Christianity wants, what Christian faith wants is God in Christ. And what's going to happen in a church that knows that is that we'll be reformed in our hearts so that that's what we become interested in. We're not so interested in our experiences anymore. We're interested in Christ. But that will also change our lives, right? It changes our hearts when our hearts are revolving around Christ and our neighbors instead of ourselves. Okay, I want to inject, and I'm going to go back to your preface because you mentioned heart, and this is another uh, Uh sticking point for me because it seems as though evangelicalism has moved to a heart theology, I hate to use those words together, as opposed to a holistic person. You know, the Hebrew talked about the nephesh and the Greek, the cardia, and we looked at the person as a whole, But this heart language, I mean, again, not to sound indelicate, it's heresy. 
I mean, your heart is evil and wicked and corrupt, yet you say, let me read this. This is your preface here, is where pastors have most seriously misled by the new evangelical theology. Of course, they want to be practical to change people and transform their lives, and they make the terrible mistake of thinking that the way to do this is to preach about our lives, our experience, and our hearts as if the only reason we came to church was to hear about ourselves. That's underlined and highlighted in my text. So help us, Prof. Okay. Right. So if you ask somebody, do you go to church because it's all about me? They'll say no. I mean, people know better than to say, oh, it's all about me. (laughs) But if you use the word heart, if you use the word heart, then people will be saying, oh, yeah, it's all about my heart, right? Which is really just another way of saying it's all about me. Um, (laughs) My heart is at the center of me. And, you know, that's, you know, that's how God made us. He made us with a heart a heart that both feels and thinks, and in the Bible, you think in your heart. But the problem is that the heart needs to be reformed in the image of Christ, because our hearts are desperately wicked. And we need to hear a word from outside of ourselves. And above all, even setting aside the desperate issue of sin, do you really want to come to church and hear about yourself all the time? I remember writing that passage, and I'm thinking, I've been to so many church services which are all about me, 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 Mm. as if that's supposed to be the most interesting thing in the world for me. And frankly, I'm not that interested in (laughs) me all the time. I'd like to hear about someone else sometime. I go to church to hear about Christ and my neighbor and God and Israel and the church, not just me. Yeah. Chapter six, you write... uh the title subtitle why you don't have to be sure you have the right motivations or how love seeks the good Cindy and I have 40 years of marriage this month and one of the things we pejoratively jest is I say there's no such thing as a pure motivation and she yeah. says oh of course there are and so we have delightfully bantered this for 40 years of marriage uh, unpack that a little bit for us because I do think that a lot of folks struggle with mm-hmm. our motivation am I doing this for the right reason and yeah. one thing, and I, I suspect you see this in your young men and women too, they'll go to Rwanda in a heartbeat, mm-hmm. but they won't talk with a friend about Christ. Uh-huh. They'll do the most Herculean, heroic, fearless things overseas, but they'll never bring up with their person, their friend who's struggling with gender identity. You know, mm-hmm. have you ever thought about maybe your identity isn't your preference, but your identity is in Christ? Yeah. I think part of it is that there is an urge to do something heroic, which convinces you that you're really committed, right? Because if the commitment is just there in your heart and how you feel, then it's really kind of hard to confirm that it's really authentic. But if you go to Rwanda, then you can really prove that you're really committed. But talking to your neighbor next door who's got a a child with a gender problem, how do you do that? For that, you need things like, well, wisdom, for instance. And wisdom is something we should be seeking. And that's another reason to be learning the word, going to a church where you hear the word all the time, and having Christ forming your heart in his image. Yeah, I think people want to convince themselves that they have the right motives. And instead of just doing what they know is right, they'll try to convince themselves that they're doing it for the right reason. And they'll fake it until they make it. That's one of their favorite Mm, sayings. mm -hmm. But look, I don't care about your motivations <laughs> in one sense. No, I'm right? with you. I just like the way you say it. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, if people need food and they're starving and you have a soup kitchen in your church, well, 
go and serve the soup. And look, your motivations will come second. Maybe as you get better at serving soup and caring about your neighbor, you'll be doing it with a cheerful and glad heart. And that's better than doing it with a grumbling heart. But do it. First, just do it. Get up in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, we get up for our soup kitchen in my church and go there. And if you don't have the right motivations, who cares? People get the soup. And maybe as you do this day in and day out or, or every week or something, the motives will come along. But it's not about your heart. It's not about your motives. It's about your neighbor. And when your heart learns that it's about your neighbor, you have a better heart. I think I wrote somewhere in the margins of your text about, you know, the fact and feeling train we used to talk about with crusade language years ago. You uh -huh. know, sometimes you have to obey without feeling the right thing. And God's kindness, maybe feeling will follow. Right. I love Cindy for 40 years, and I do things for her that are an inconvenience to me. They're not a priority to me. They're out of my way. But I know if I do them, it makes my wife's life a little lighter. It makes her load easier. And, you know, over time I go, hey, I'm doing that for my wife, and I'm not even going to tell her I did it for her. <laughs> right. But one does get a bit better at this as, as you – Yes. Right. It might take 40 years. Right? It has. Yeah. <laughs> it has. I'm jumping around your text, but – this is in the section why you don't have to keep getting transformed all the time. Oh, and this boy. is language yeah. I really found striking in the last five, six years, the transformation of the heart. Uh-huh. And yep. again, you write about transformational experiences. Expand on that for folks. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those cases where there's something right about this language, but there's something wrong about how it gets used. Because God is in the business of transforming our hearts and making us into new people in the image of Christ and forming us and reforming us in the image of Christ. He does that. But unfortunately, that becomes a marketing thing in a lot of churches. And, and if I can interrupt, that's perhaps not the way people hear it. Right, indeed. Okay. They, it constantly comes to them as this marketing thing that they're supposed to cooperate with. They're supposed to actually believe that the marketing works, right? I'm living a transformed life. Because you're supposed to be able to say that in order to prove that the marketing really works, right? Because the church is in this spiritual marketplace. It's competing with other spiritual forces in our culture. And you're supposed to actually believe that you're an entirely different person because you're absorbing the spiritual goods, the spiritual merchandise that the church is selling you. The problem then becomes that you're supposed to be having these transformative experiences all the time. Right. The poor pastors, they're supposed to give you a transformative experience every Sunday. Every Sunday, boy. Yeah. But I mean, it's so much easier to teach the word of God than to give people a transformative experience every <laughs> Sunday, right? And right, but think of what a bad idea it is to have a transformative experience every Sunday. Right. You need to be one person. You need to be faithful and obedient and kind, and you need a long obedience in the same direction. You want to get married to someone and be the same husband or wife, faithful for 40 years. That takes long-term constancy and uh, fidelity and not changing all the time, not being transformed all the time. We shouldn't be transformed all, all the time. Here's the example I use, and you, you probably remember this. Think of the transformative experience of falling in love. It's a really nice experience. I like that experience, right? But it would be a very bad thing to fall in love every week with a new person, right? Because then you're, you're not going to be faithful. You're not going to be constant. You'll be a lousy husband or wife. 
falling in love is nice. You can fall in love if, if you want. By the way, you don't have to. What matters is the marriage. So if you marry someone that you can love for 40 years, falling in love is just an entryway to that. And if you didn't happen to fall in love, that's fine too. I know some people who've been married for a long time in good marriages that didn't fall in love. They were just faithful to each other. Mm -hmm. That's what matters. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're falling in love all the time with different people, then you don't get to settle down and become one person and become a good father or a good husband or a good wife. I often uh, use the illustration of people that pray for miracles. And I go, look, you can pray for a miracle and I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't. But the problem of the miracle is you're going to need another one and another one and another one. And my axiom is uh, ask not God for a mere miracle, uh, ask him for an immovable faith. Because I need faith for the long haul when the miracle doesn't come. And my contention is Lazarus got a short deal, a short shrift deal, because he had to die again. <laughs> he was right. on his way. And no, nope, we're going to come back for a while. So the miracles that we want God to work, as you say, transformative experiences. Yes, they're like falling in love. Yes, they're wonderful. But that can't be a baseline. Right. The baseline is the truth of the word of God and then the long-term obedience that says, I'm going to be the same person now that I was 40 years ago. I'm still married to the same woman, and I've done my best to be a, good at being married to the same woman. And I have the same beloved who is my savior, and I want to be the same faithful Christian that I've been trying to be for 40 years. And that's mostly a matter of constancy more than transformation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the constancy in the long run does make you a different person in the end, and that's good. But it takes a long time, and it takes constancy and working at it and being faithful. And maturity is a good thing, and you can't get there quickly. Right. I, I've and jumped around your book quite a bit. Let me back up and ask you the response from the text. I suspect many of your students have sat under your classes, and they have heard these things, and then you've put it in a package. What have been some of the, maybe the top two things you've heard in response from the book? Okay, so a critical question that gets asked some of my students have asked me, well, does that mean God doesn't speak today? Mm. I tell them, look, you don't have to listen for God in your heart. Right? You get to hear God in the Bible and in good preaching and in songs and hymns and spiritual songs and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're saying, well, does that mean God doesn't speak today? And the funny thing is that I've always thought when you preach the gospel, that's God speaking today. Right? The gospel is God addressing us with his word today. And so a whole lot of folks are not used to the idea that God can come to us in an external word, a word that comes into us through our ears. The way that, you know, my wife's voice comes into my ears when she says, I, I love you, right? It doesn't come into me from within my heart. I have to hear her speak. It comes to me from outside. So that's sort of one question, right? Does God speak today? Well, of course. He's been doing this for 2,000 years. He's been having the gospel preached through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the teaching of God's people. So here's another question that's been asked. How do I let God take control of my life? Mm. The God's right? will question, yep. Mm -hmm. There you go. How do I let God, what do I do to, to let go and let God mm -hmm. and so on? Keswick's, um, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I don't have to give God control. And this is not something that's my responsibility. God is in control because he's God, because he's real. So I don't have to let God do anything. The lovely thing is God is real, and therefore God does stuff whether I like it or not. And sometimes I don't like it, and sometimes it's wonderful. And that's all this 
you know, experience with reality that is other than my thoughts. And my thoughts have to conform to the reality of God himself. And that's a good thing. So I don't have to give God control. The funny thing is, in the great parable that our Lord Jesus tells us, the master gives control of these talents to the servant, mm -hmm. right? So the structure of the parable is not, I'm giving control to God. Why? What a silly idea. The story of the parable is God gives control to us, right? A limited control, of course. God gives us talents that are our responsibility, and we have to be in control of these things and have self-control in our lives and develop these things so that we can honor God by doing good things with the things that he has put into our control. It's the whole opposite direction from this notion of giving God control of your life. The biblical term for what you're supposed to do there is obedience, right? Which is not, I mean, when you're obedient, you're not giving control to God. You're obeying what submitting. he said. Yeah, you're submitting to yeah. what he said, yeah. Yeah, and the problem is that obedience is a word that we don't use much anymore, which means that we have a hard time understanding a whole lot of what the Bible's trying to teach us. Yeah, sure. Again, back to, and again, sewing some of these things together, listening to you, I loved the way you diagnosed, and as I opened this particular broadcast, the anxieties that Protestants have vis-a-vis -vis the anxieties Catholics have. Expand on that for us who, you know, for me, Phil, it helped frame a lot of the assurance versus eternal security versus yeah. assurance of salvation. Because I was raised Catholic, and I came ah. to Christ out of Catholicism, and then mm -hmm. I had to adopt a whole new nomenclature, and these words didn't you know, transfer from A to B, and then I was in, caught between the Catholic Church and the Bible teaching churches I attended. And that would have spared me a whole lot of agony if you'd been around about 44 years ago. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean— I've been there. Um, I, I don't think I've been as afflicted by this as some people because I sort of got out of that pretty quickly. But yeah, it can be a deep affliction. And the problem is that we live in a world of sin and evil and death. So we're going to have anxieties, right? You know, we're commanded not to be anxious about anything, but we're weak and we will be anxious. So we got to figure out, you know, how we live with our anxieties. And every theology, every religious tradition, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, is going to have its anxieties and it will locate these anxieties at one place or another and they'll locate them at different places. So Catholics traditionally would worry about whether they were in a state of mortal sin. You may recall that from your childhood. Very well. Yeah. Now, Protestants have never even heard of that right. term. What's that right? mean? Mm -hmm. they, yeah, they don't know what it means. Mortal sin means that you sinned in such a way that if you don't confess your sin, you go to hell. Because, and, and at best, you're headed to purgatory for some period of time. <laughs> yeah, right. And, depend, and that a lot depends on what your view of purgatory is. Well, that's right? another one. Yeah, we won't go down that road. <laughs> another one. Yeah, we, we can talk about that one later. Mortal sin is tied to the Catholic view that when you're born again, you're born again in baptism. So you might be baptized as an infant. That's when you're born again, according to Catholic teaching. But then does that guarantee that you're going to be saved? Well, no, because you can sin. And you can sin so badly that you lose the new life that is given to you in Christ. And that's why it's called mortal sin. So adultery, murder, terrible sins are enough to sort of wipe out the new life in baptism. And then you go to hell unless you confess it. That's the anxiety. Let me give you a picture for how that works. In the great Catholic poet Dante in the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. Dante takes a trip through hell at the beginning of this long epic poem. And there's a lot of Christians in hell. 
bad Christians, bad Catholics, right? They were baptized. They had the true faith of Christ, but they committed mortal sin. They did something awful and they never repented of it. And so there's Christians in hell. Protestants do not believe there are Christians in hell. That's one way of saying the, the great difference, right? Because if you're Christian and you have the true faith of Christ, then you're saved, right? Because you're saved by faith alone. That's what all the Protestant tradition agrees upon, you know, Luther, Calvin, Reformed, Baptist, whatever you, you want to call them. You know, faith alone is enough to save you. But of course, how are you going to be anxious about that? You can be anxious about whether you have true saving faith, whether you really truly believe in your heart, right? And lots and lots of people have that anxiety. There's a whole Calvinist tradition of anxiety about whether you have true salvation, whether you have true saving faith. How do you find out if you have true saving faith, right? That's a real puzzler mm -hmm. and it's terrifying, right? Especially if faith becomes something you have to do, right? If faith is something you do to get saved, then it becomes one more work, right? It becomes one more work that you do to get saved. So the way it can go wrong was illustrated by J.D. Greer, who is currently, I think, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He wrote a little book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Right. <laughs> Look, there's nothing wrong with asking Jesus into your heart, but that's not going to save you because you can do that a thousand times. And he did. Actually, Greer says he must have asked Jesus into his heart a thousand times. <laughs> that's why he, I could never be Baptist, because on a yeah. good sermon, I'd walk the aisle every Sunday being sure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because first you make a decision for Christ and then you think, oh, did I really surrender my heart to Jesus? Well, maybe not. So I'll make a decision for Jesus again and I'll do it again and I'll do it again and I'll do it again. And maybe I'll get baptized a second or third or fourth time. I think J.D. Greer got baptized like five or six times. Well, and the corollary, too, and so often on the other side of the pastor, you know, relationship thing with people is when you're living apart from God or living in sin, you know, those anxieties, to use your language, they stir up. And yep. uh, how can I, you know, in your sane moments, it may not be the long, dark night of the soul, but it might be bordering that. And you're going, did I really believe? Did I do the right thing? Did I pray the right prayer? How do I know for sure? And that's where, you know, you and I have the same affinity for Luther, where, you know, you preach yep. the gospel to yourself. And you call that language in the devil a liar, because right. this is what the Bible says, not how I feel. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, to trace that to a third step, right? The okay. Catholic step is, you know, if you find yourself sinning, that might be mortal sin. You better go to confession. The Protestant, the typical Protestant view is, okay, faith alone is all you need, but you better make a decision for Christ and you better make sure it's the right decision. And how do you know you've really made the decision in the depth of your heart? Uh-oh, right? And then you're, you're stuck looking at your own heart all the time. And that generates some of this experiential stuff. What Luther wants to say is, listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because in the gospel, Jesus says, lo, I am with you, even to the end of the world, or this is my body, it's given for you, and he means you, or I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Luther says, look, that's Christ's promise, that he's baptizing you, that, that you belong to him, so if you're anxious, just stop worrying about whether Jesus is lying to you and believe that he tells you the truth when he gives himself to you in the gospel. Because he's saying it, right? This is my body. It's given for you. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no anxieties. You can worry about whether you're going to have faith tomorrow or the next day or the day after that, right? Will you persevere in the faith? All that kind of thing. But if Luther's right, 
and I think even John Calvin gets this, right? You have the promise today, right? Today, you can turn to the promise of the gospel and hang on to Christ's promise to you. And if you're anxious tomorrow, then turn to the gospel tomorrow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, as the King James Bible translates the Sermon on the Mount. Look, you're going to have anxieties today. When they happen, turn to the gospel, not to your heart, right? not to your sense of how sinless you are or whether you have mortal sin. Luther said, look, it's all mortal sin. That, that's why Protestants forget about mortal sin, because Luther said it's all mortal sin. There's no difference. right? It's all mortal sin. You have no hope in yourself. No hope. Not even in your own faith. Put your faith not in your faith, but in the gospel, right? because faith is not faith in faith. Faith is faith in the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that is a great comfort. right? And there is an emotional side to this. It is comfort and joy to believe in the gospel. But it's because the gospel is true for heaven's sakes. And that's what you cling to. That's what you hang on to. Our beloved has made a promise and he will keep his word. He'll be true mm -hmm. to his word. You know, he's like your faithful spouse, but he's even more faithful than the most faithful human spouse you could possibly imagine because he will keep his word. And he's not going to let go of you. And you can count on that. So keep on turning to that promise. And then you will have you know, the weapon against the anxiety. And then, as you mentioned, if the worry comes into your heart, am I really a Christian? You know, label that. That's the devil speaking. Yes, I'm a Christian. I'm baptized. The gospel has been preached to me. I believe this. And I have no right to think of myself as damned. I have no right to think of myself as not a beloved of Christ because he's promised. And if he's promised, he'll keep his promise. So go away, devil. Don't tell me I'm not a Christian. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not, not a good Christian. I know I don't believe as, I, as much as I should, but the gospel is true. So go away. That, that's how Luther talks. Yeah. Two sidebar comments. I mean, the nature of the command not to be anxious to me begs the question because we're mm -hmm. prone to anxiety. You know, we're, yeah. it's uh, be strong and of good courage. I tell people when I reference that, I go, God doesn't tell strong, courageous people to be strong <laughs> and courageous. He tells weak and fearful people be strong and courageous. So when yeah. you read that again, of course, you know, well, the most oft repeated command in the scripture is do not fear, do not be afraid. And fear so not. it's striking that these things as common as they are to an average reader, we still miss them. <laughs> yeah. And I think there it really helps to realize that the commandments of God serve an invitation, right? The commandments of God sound like they're saying you must do this. And they are saying that. But behind it really is, you may do this, right? The commandments serve the gospel. Behind the commandment is an invitation. Fear not does not mean, oh, you bad Christian, you're so fearful, you're right. going to go to hell because you're afraid, right? No, it's, don't worry, it's all right. Fear not, right? It's an invitation to relax, to trust God, and not to worry if you're not trusting God enough, because, yeah, you don't trust God enough, mm -hmm. right? You are too fearful, but fear not. God can rescue the fearful too. Right? Right. It's an invitation. The way one great theologian puts it is God's must is always in service to God's may, right? Mm. You must not fear, therefore you may not fear, right? Mm. You're allowed not to fear because you're commanded not to fear. The commandment serves our comfort and joy. It's not a way of demanding something from us that we can't give. Right. Yeah, and it, it's striking too the way we view obedience. One of my 
again, oft comments is you'll never regret obeying God. You know, there's no downside to obeying God. It's not as though you're going to go to jail if you disobey, but there's always a benefit you and I may not appreciate in the moment, but you'll never regret obeying God, and it's trusting Him no matter our circumstance because He knows better. He's a good Father and a good God. Right. I think the trusting in the promise is so very important because it means you have something to hang on to in the midst of anxieties and fears and changes and you know pandemics and all sorts of things, because you can trust that God will be true to his word. You can't trust your own faith because your own faith is weak. You know, your, your heart is going to be fearful, but Jesus, our Lord, will keep his word and will be true to his word and he'll keep his promise and he will keep you safe. Absolutely. Keep turning to that. Yeah. That, well, and I use the, the little engine that could analogy because <laughs> that's faith and faith. And, you know, it's not going to get you very far, but yeah. you're faithful in someone else who can do yeah. for you what you can't do for yourself. This is a side sidebar too. Uh, your comment about baptize you, and I can't remember if I read it or heard it in one of your lectures, but it freed me personally because as a pastor who officiates baptisms, I've always kind of chortled back in my throat, how do I say I am baptizing you in the name of the Father? Because I'm not. <laughs> and you, I think it was in one of your lectures, it may have been your text, you said the officiant, my word, is not saying they're doing it, they're saying it as the voice of Christ. And just yes. that nuance really helped me, Phil. Oh, good, good, yeah. Yeah, you want to hear the word of Christ in those words, because he's the one who gave us those words. Right. And he them for, for a way of comforting us and strengthening us and reassuring us that we belong to him. I remember one philosopher saying to me, you know, your name is not in the Bible, right? Your name is nowhere. So how do you know that the Bible is about you? Well, baptism is a way of Christ saying, it's about you, you personally, mm. right? He, he says, you personally belong to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's why you're being dunked. That's why you're being splashed. That's why you're being baptized. It's like a wedding vow, right? And it's said to you personally. And many times, of course, that's when you're named. Right. The baptism gives you your name. So your name is not in the Bible, but you have been called by name by the word of God in your own life if you've been baptized. Mm -hmm. And that's a way that you can hang on to that and say, all right, Jesus has a promise to keep. He said he's going to be my savior. He said that I belong to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll make him keep his word. <laughs> right? I'm, right, I'll hold him to his word, and he doesn't mind being held. To right, his word. right. He likes that, right? right? So, so hang on to this word and, and expect him to be faithful to it. You belong to him, yeah. And he said so. He promised. I have this weekly reading group, and we're going through confessions right now. And all of these men are far more academic and credentialed and smarter than me. I learned years ago: surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. So uh, every Monday for an hour, hour and a half, we go through uh, confessions. And I was struck in, you know, I've seen this now in three places, you come back to this Trinitarian doctrine of Augustine, and it really intrigued me, Phil, that you end this book with the Augustinian seven statements, the yeah. Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And then you comment about, that's straightforward, no confusion there. And then, four, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and then the one that pulls it all together, there's only one God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, help me, help us. Why is this important as you tie a bow on this 
Ah. Why experience leads to a post-Christian future? Why are we going to talk about a Trinitarian doctrine at the end of this text? Because think of the difference between being all about how I'm experiencing love, which is about me, and caring about my beloved. If I care about my beloved, then I want to know who my beloved is. Do you want to know who God is? Then you're going to have to learn the doctrine of the Trinity, because God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. So if you love God, you're going to want to know the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, those seven statements are just a bare bones logic, right? It's the bare bones of the structure of the story that we call the gospel, because that story has the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit doing a whole lot of stuff together. But if you want to understand the structure of that story, if you want to make sense of it, you're going to need the doctrine of the Trinity. Because if you're a biblical Christian, you're going to be doing this weird thing that no other religion ever does. You're going to worship a crucified man as if he's the same God as the one who created heaven and earth. Now, Jews don't do that. Muslims don't do that. Nobody does that except Christians. And if either Christians are idolaters or Jesus really is Lord, and the name of the Lord God of Israel rightly belongs to him because he sits on the throne of God, and therefore he is the eternal son of God who is God. He's not the same as the father, but he is God, right? So the whole structure of Christian belief, which is the structure of the story of the gospel, requires us to have that logic of those seven statements. Otherwise, otherwise we're idolaters. It really doesn't make sense. And what will end up happening is that Jesus will either become well, typically happen is that Jesus will become just a great teacher and our friend and someone who has nice things to say to us, but it wouldn't make sense to worship him because after all, how could he be God? He's a man, right? Well, in Christian faith, this is a man who is God in the flesh. And that makes no sense at all unless you have the doctrine of the Trinity. So if you want to know who is your beloved, you need to know the doctrine of the Trinity. There is a reference, it's 1 Corinthians 12, for now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, varieties of ministries, and the same Lord, and varieties of effects, but the same God who works yeah. all things and all persons. And I've never seen that in a pneumatology text or a theology handbook, but Paul delineates, if you could, the nuances, the varieties of gifts, spiritual, ministries to the Lord, the effects God. Yeah. Yeah. And I find that striking that it seems to be, and I'm, I'm saying that hyperbolically, I've not seen it in a theology text for defense of the Trinitarian Godhead. Well, it should be, yes, because you can just uh, summarize that. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Right. And that's one God. What does happen is there's a particular bit of vocabulary that the New Testament uses a lot that I've been studying recently that I just love this. Oftentimes, the word God is associated especially with the Father. But in the New Testament, the word Lord, which is the name of the Lord God of Israel, after all, is associated especially with Jesus, because Jesus is Lord. That's the earliest Christian confession we know of. Jesus Correct. is Lord. Mm -hmm. And that's saying that the name of the Lord God of Israel belongs rightly to this crucified man who's been raised from the dead and is now sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So the word God gets associated with the Father. The word Lord gets associated with Jesus. And the word Spirit, yeah, that, that's been the Holy Spirit ever since Psalm 51. So that's been around a long time. Mm -hmm. But what's striking is that oftentimes people look for the New Testament to say that Jesus is God. And the New Testament doesn't say that in so many words, although it comes close a couple of times. What it says in so many words is Jesus is Lord. It says this over and over and over again. 
And in the Old Testament context, where Lord is a substitute for the name of God, that tells you that Christians are worshiping Jesus as the Lord God of Israel. And then this fascinating thing, all right, so how, what do you mean when you say God then? If, you, if the word Lord goes to Jesus, where's the word God taking us? And then Jesus tells us, oh, well, you want to pray to God rather than to me? Well, just say our Father who art in heaven. So you call upon the name of the Lord, you're calling upon the name of Jesus. You're calling upon God, you're calling upon your Father, just like Jesus teaches us. That's how you get the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. The way we pray, the way we worship, the way we tell the story of the gospel. And then the power of the Holy Spirit is precisely what gives us the words to say all those things from the apostles to the prophets and on down through the whole teaching of scripture in the past 2000 years. Granted, the Jew does not recognize Christ as the Christ, but when we look at the Tetragrammaton, uh, when we look at Adonai, Kathif Kare, Elohim, the different mm -hmm. language, they certainly, although monotheistic, would you call them Trinitarian? You mean the Jews, did you say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the Old Testament is implicitly Trinitarian. It's pointing toward Christ. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, my Jewish friends would disagree with me. Of about course, this. right, right. Right. But again, you've got the Spirit in the beginning. You've got the Spirit throughout. The, he departs. He comes. David's awareness of his pneumatology is better than most Christians today. And yet, you don't ever hear, at least in my communication with my Jewish friends, a few that I still have a relationship with in this area, this is not something we talk about. Is there a Trinitarian Godhead in the Old Testament? Forget Jesus being the Christ. Yep. which they don't acknowledge, there seems no uh, resistance to that. Yeah, this is fascinating, right? The, the Holy Spirit is mentioned by name in the Old Testament, especially in Psalm right. 51. But of course, the spirit of the prophets, the Holy Spirit's everywhere. Christ appears in a number of guises in the Old Testament. He's the wisdom of God in Proverbs. He is the angel of the Lord, I mm -hmm. think. In, Definite in the, article, yeah. Yeah, the angel of the Lord. Right. Angel of the Lord is addressed as the Lord in narratives in Genesis and right. Exodus. Right? right. So the angel of the Lord is like the local presence of the God of Israel. And you can address this angel and call him Lord. Now, what kind of angel is that? Mm -hmm. right? In the New Testament, if you get an angel like Gabriel or Michael and try to worship him, he'll say, no, don't do that. I'm a servant like you. You don't worship angels. Right. So what are we doing when we call an angel Lord? We're, this is a very special angel. This is the pre-incarnate presence of Christ. Theophany or Christophany, right? Right. Yeah, it's a Christophany. That's right. exactly mm -hmm. right. So I think the structure of the story of the Bible is Trinitarian from the get-go. It's there in Genesis mm -hmm. 1. Mm -hmm. It's there in the experience of Israel with God. And it's fulfilled and not overturned, but fulfilled by the life of Christ who comes in the name of the Lord and in whose name we call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, it's just fascinating thing. You call upon the name of the Lord is an Old Testament phrase. When the New Testament uses that same phrase, it's talking about Jesus. Yes, that's the fulfillment of the promise to Israel in the Old Testament. And that's a great landing for our first program, and you're going to have to come back talk about the meaning of Protestant theology, Prof. Be glad to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.